right, guys, I think we're going to get started. Um, so I think probably most of you know who I am, but I'll just quickly, Colleen Kershaw, for anyone that doesn't. Um, I'm kind of filling in for Brian. He's running late in clinic um, today. So I have the pleasure of introducing Daisy Goodman, um, who's going to be our speaker today. Um, she is an assistant professor at the Dartmouth Institute and adjunct professor of nursing in Colby-Sawyer and received her uh, DMP from MGH in 2010 and her MPH from Geisel in 2014. Um, she has a very strong background in healthcare quality improvement um, and is a certified um, nurse midwife here at DH and has practiced in multiple locations around northern New England as well. So her overall interest um, has been in improving access and quality of care for women in underserved rural communities. And as part of that, she's developed a very um, special interest and expertise, specifically in the area of substance use disorder in women's health in the perinatal period. And so we'll be talking to us about that today. She's the director of the Women's Health Services um, for Moms in Recovery program here at DH. And she also leads educational initiatives for trainees within OBGYN um, on management of perinatal substance use. She has a long history of research in this area as well, including multiple uh, funded projects. And her most recent uh, project is integrated uh, NAT for pregnant and postpartum women. So today she'll talk with us about uh, this very extremely important topic, I think, to all of us. Um, and the talk is moving uh, towards um, optimal care for women in opioid use disorder. So thank you so much for being here and welcome. Um, we're happy to have you. I should say, actually, sorry, before we get started, Please. Um, the code for CME, if you didn't see it on the door, is D as in dog, four, G as in Gregory, and then Q. Um, and Daisy has no conflicts of interest. Additionally, for those that are um, here for continuing nursing education credit, you must stay for 80% of the um, presentation. Thank you. Thanks. So thank you very much for this opportunity to talk to you about the work we're doing um, here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock um, to improve outcomes for pregnant and parenting women with opiate use disorders. Um, as stated, I have no financial conflicts. I want to acknowledge that everything that I'm talking about today is uh, the result of um, efforts of a huge uh, multidisciplinary team. Um, specifically, want to mention our medical director, Dr. Julia Fru at the Moms in Recovery Program, my colleagues in maternal fetal medicine um, in OBGYN, um, and many, many others. So this list of funders and project managers is the tip of the iceberg, and there's a huge number of collaborators involved in this. Um, so I thought we could start with just briefly discussing what we know about the prevalence and significance of opioid use disorder in pregnancy, and that is uh, some, but not. there's a lot more to learn. And then talk about the current initiatives that we have ongoing here at DH, um, and specifically the launch of our new Center for Addiction Recovery and Pregnancy and Parenting, uh, which is about three or four, month, four months old now. And then uh, I hope uh, that we'll really have uh, a rich discussion afterwards about ways that we can further our multidisciplinary collaboration, because I know there are many uh, people in the room here who I already have the privilege of working with, and hopefully we'll just continue to expand that work together. All right, so no secret to anybody that um, we're um, in the epicenter up here in northern New England along with the Rest Belt. Um, and our three states here um, have a very similar trajectory in terms of worsening of this epidemic. Um, New Hampshire is ahead of everybody else um, in our rates uh, for overdose death, uh, but I think we're all on the same curve. 
uh, which is pretty interesting considering the difference in uh, reimbursement structures in each of our three states. So uh, Vermont does have overall the lowest rate of opioid um, overdose death, and that's probably because of the really nice work that they're doing there in addressing uh, this issue in a systematic way. New Hampshire, um, as you know, just received a large amount of money and is really trying to take a more systematic approach now, and um, we're excited to see um, how that moves forward. And um, as you all know, I'm sure DH is um, sort of the super hub for the New Hampshire's hub and spoke uh, model. So that'll be developing, and the launch for that model is the 1st of January 2019. So um, hurry up and get started. <laughs> Uh, and I know that this will be something that we work very closely with in, um, infectious disease colleagues on because obviously we're all taking care of the same people. Um, and this uh, opioid use epidemic, the current opioid use epidemic, I must say because there have been other opioid epidemics um, in the United States um, and internationally. And so I really want to pay um, acknowledgement to the people who died in the last many rounds who are very frequently not acknowledged because uh, people are very focused on the current status. Um, but anyway, in our current opioid um, epidemic, um, maternal child health is really um, in the crosshairs. These are data from Kaiser uh, Family Foundation um, comparing opioid overdose uh, deaths over among women uh, from 2001 to 2016. Again, you can see that New Hampshire has the usual distinction of being well ahead of the pack. Um, and these account for between a quarter and a third of all um, opioid overdose deaths in, um, our, in our states. So men do um, die at a higher rate than women, but women are right up there. 60% um, of all pregnancy-associated deaths in New Hampshire over the past two years were caused by unintended overdose, and that number does not include people that you may have taken care of who died of infectious endocarditis, for example, um, or other um, complications of injection drug use. This is only the people who died of overdose. And then over 40% of child protection cases in New Hampshire are attributable to parental substance use. So very serious impact on families. Um, and the thing that is probably the most uh, frequently mentioned in terms of, um, of maternal um, opioid use, of course, is neonatal abstinence syndrome. And this is um, a figure from the car recent CARSI report um, from UNH, uh, which looked at hospital discharge uh, data with a diagnosis of neonatal abstinence. And you can see that um, accelerating curve there reflecting um, the acceleration of the epidemic for us um, regionally. Um, but these numbers are certain, almost definitely, which is acknowledged in the report and under um, report because these are only babies who are discharged with that diagnosis. So a baby who was taken care of in the hospital who had opioid um, withdrawal symptoms but did not rise to the occasion of needing um, pharmacotherapy for that would not necessarily have received a discharge diagnosis of NAS and would not be reflected in these numbers. So, and then of course um, here um, and nationally, we have uh, perinatal hepatitis C, which is an emerging epidemic um, in New Hampshire. And among our um, patients um, at, uh, who are pregnant with opiate use disorder and DHMC, we have about a 30% rate of positive antibody um, and about half of those uh, still have, a little over half still have active um, virus. Unfortunately, um, Chronic active hepatitis C uh, during pregnancy is um, 
vertically transmissible, as you well know, um, and the rate that we quote to our patients is what the CDC um, and the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine tell us, which is between 5 and 6%. Um, and Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine also conducted a couple of systematic reviews looking at association with preterm birth and low birth weight and found that this is not really as benign um, an infection during pregnancy as we had at one time thought. Um, but it does seem to cause worse pregnancy outcomes, and there is a 20 times increase in the odds of intrahepatic cholestasis, um, which I can say, um, and Dr. DeGeisel could probably agree with it, uh, we are seeing a huge amount of those cases um, in our moms and recovery patients, which is really uh, surprising. So that is, uh, in obstetrics, a fairly rare event, but when somebody has hepatitis C, it's not. So there are many other consequences, of course, um, of untreated opiate use disorders for mothers and babies um, in the antenatal and postnatal um, periods, exposure to other substances, infection, of course, uh, limited prenatal care, short interpregnancy interval due to a lack of follow-up postpartum for family planning, um, all of the problems that uh, we know that go along with substance use disorders, um, that unemployment, housing, food insecurity, we see um, very significant dental problems in our patients. Um, and of course, there's always the lurking risk of overdose. And for baby, um, poor uh, perinatal outcomes, um, withdrawal that is more severe if the mom is not in treatment. Um, and if baby is polysubstance exposed, more a greater likelihood of developmental delays and other neurologic problems, um, as well as, of course, um, the problems that happen when you grow up in a family where there's a lot of active substance use. We also have found out, um, and this is a nice paper by uh, Meta um, and colleagues, um, that opiate use is actually associated with severe maternal morbidity and mortality during the delivery hospitalization. So it's not just before and after, but actually while in the hospital, um, there are more, uh, a much higher um, odds of in-hospital death uh, for moms who have an opiate use disorder, um, cardiac arrest, cerebrovascular events, abruption, growth restriction, stillbirth, prematurity, and of course, sepsis. So uh, this is a really um, nice study that looked at population level data um, over, um, from 1998 to 2011. Um, and these rates here, um, you can see, are stratified by age, and that's the prevalence of opiate, what, was in the, IC, uh, the DSM-4 opiate abuse and dependence, but now we call opiate use disorder. Um, you can see the increase in rates um, among the population over that um, time period. And then they took a five-year retrospective from 2011 back to 2007 um, and looked at these particular um, complications um, and found that when moms have this disorder, they're more likely to have these uh, severe complications during the time of their hospitalization. So it's not just what happens before pregnancy and after pregnancy, it's even when they're in the hospital that they're more likely to die or have an adverse event. So when we think about um, our aims in improving experience of care and outcomes for this patient, we think, of course, about decreasing morbidity and mortality. We also are acutely aware of, and I hope we will talk more about, reducing the cost um, of what, it, it, what there is to take care of this uh, group of patients, because if we could really quantify that, we would justify all of the addiction treatment programs in the world, and we would have no problem getting funding. <laughs> So I hope I can inspire you to, to take 
that I'll look at that. Um, we also think about um, the experience of care for these patients, so how um, we can optimally increase um, engagement, both in terms of accessing medication-assisted treatment, but also developing a sense of alliance between families and care teams that really allows us to support our patients with case management. So if we can't engage on a respectful and meaningful level, we're not going to be able to provide the case management that people need. Um, and we also hope that um, we can increase engagement um, in families with um, the care of their high-risk infants, um, improving their knowledge and confidence. And then, of course, we want them to come in for their prenatal care as well and postnatal. But there is one more goal that we really need to think about, and that is the level of reducing the level of stress that providers um, ourselves feel in caring for this population, because we often um, are hearing a lot about burnout and a lot about frustration and anger with patients um, and dissatisfaction with work and a feeling of things being really um, overwhelming. And that's been our work in the Moms in Recovery program also, is really trying to meet our colleagues and say, you know, how can we put of some process improvement in here, how can we work better together collaboratively so that we feel like we do have solutions for our patients and we don't feel like it's a dead end street for them and a revolving door. So um, the Center for Substance Abuse Treatment um, does uh, acknowledge that treating women is different, um, that women's needs uh, need to be um, addressed in a range um, and that we can't really consider a woman who is parenting in isolation from the, her needs as a parent, um, as a mother, um, and the needs of her children. So treatment that addresses alcohol and drug abuse only may well fail and contribute to a higher potential for relapse. And those comprehensive treatment goals they further um, describe as universal screening for all women of reproductive age, access to treatment which accommodates children, recovery-sensitive perinatal care, so removing the judgment and the stigma out of the primary and, and uh, obstetric care that we provide for patients, um, a model which links patients to primary reproductive specialist and mental health care, and then um, improving our partnerships with community-based uh, family supports. Uh, this clinical guidance document uh, was just released in the beginning of this year. If you haven't seen it and you take care of pregnant women uh, with opiate use disorder, I really highly recommend it. It was put together by a really expert panel, um, internationally um, known, and, and it's a great document. So this is, um, of course, a unique opportunity. So pregnant women are uh, very um, inspired uh, for self-care and they feel that uh, the actual reality of being pregnant really changes everything. And so this is a time when they're willing um, to engage in a way that um, they haven't been in the past, and it's our opportunity that it's really important uh, for us not to miss. Um, we can also blow it by not um, being there um, in a supportive um, and comprehensive way, of course. So this is a schematic of what it looks like um, to become engaged in the Moms in Recovery program um, as a pregnant patient. So here's where the patient enters the system. In our department of OBGYN, we do um, comprehensive screening, brief intervention, and referral for treatment um, using tablet-based screening. 
Um, and we also um, have um, a purple pod, uh, which is a group of providers who are all um, trained in buprenorphine prescribing. Um, it is a resident-run clinic, so although our residents don't actually prescribe buprenorphine, they all uh, have taken the waiver training and have that background. Um, they also get motivational interviewing training, um, and um, we see primarily uh, pregnant women with substance use disorders in purple pod. Um, Dr. Fisher is our uh, director of our residency division, and he um, leads that group along with myself. Um, and then um, in that purple pod clinic, we also have an embedded behavioral health clinician, and we have um, case management using community health workers. So we're really trying to bring together the comprehensive services there. And, um, a couple days ago, we saw um, two women who came in accompanied by correctional officers, and there's a huge amount of case management that goes into taking care of somebody who's incarcerated and trying to protect that moment when they actually are uh, released from jail and um, have a, a huge risk of overdose at that moment, but also a risk of sort of disappearing in, back into the woodwork, and we really try to do as much uh, positive case management as possible. Um, we um, are a bridge to the Mothers in Recovery or Moms in Recovery program, um, which is uh, located um, at the River Mill Complex in Lebanon, and there we provide medication-assisted treatment using Suboxone, um, group and individual therapy, obstetric care, psychiatric uh, care, so treatment of co-occurring mental health needs, case management, uh, peer recovery support, and we're proud to say now that we have an hepatitis C uh, treatment pilot for our postpartum um, and parenting moms. Thank you. Um, when the patient um, is uh, ready to go to the hospital, um, she has the benefit of a pediatric rooming in uh, program now. So the baby um, will be monitored for four or five days for neonatal opioid withdrawal, but the mom is no longer discharged to David's house. She can stay with the baby as the baby's roommate. And that's been very successful um, in helping to bring uh, down our rates of um, pharmacotherapy for babies who are withdrawing from opioids. So that's uh, work that's being led by Dr. Bonnie Whalen and Dr. Allison Holt. Um, of course, uh, we also have uh, the benefit of inpatient psychiatry and patient, you guys, inpatient infectious disease, um, lactation and care management there, and then a discharge to a pediatric uh, service now called the Pediatric Purple Pod, which is attempting to do the same recovery-friendly um, primary pediatric work that we're doing um, in the OB setting um, to follow babies who have been prenatally exposed to substances. Yes, please. Just to get a better picture of this, the Mountain Recovery, that's a total outpatient program? Or? It is. We have two uh, levels of care, well, three levels of care right now. We have um, a regular weekly buprenorphine program. We have a uh, sort of maintenance level where people d uh, decrease frequency of visits to two to uh, twice a monthly to monthly. And then we also have intensive um, outpatient program, which is funded by the 1115 waiver, the district program. But there's no overnight. Not yet. And, and for the, uh, once they're in the hospital, this is uh, combined obstetrics and pediatrics? Well, so they come into the birthing pavilion, so that's mother-baby care. But if the baby needs to be discharged and we have a bed crunch, which we inevitably always do, especially now that we have integrated with the APD service, uh, the baby will be discharged to pediatrics, and the mom will travel with the baby and become the baby's roommate which is a really nice model on the pizza board. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Other questions? This is a very complicated picture, I know. 
Um, we have a two-way street always with community mental health because sometimes women really need more uh, mental health services than we can provide them. Um, obviously, we're trying to link all of our patients to primary care. Um, we work very collaboratively with um, infectious disease and are so appreciative of that. In fact, um, most of our hepatitis C uh, patients are referred to you guys now. Um, and then, of course, um, sometimes women um, get to a place where it's really inconvenient to come to Lebanon, and we hope that we can link them to other substance use care um, in their home communities, or sometimes they need to move to a higher level of care, such as a residential program. And so we do a lot of case management in terms of their linking to substance use treatment as well. All right, so what do we know about treating opiate use disorder during pregnancy? Research strongly favors opiate agonist therapy, so either methadone or buprenorphine. Um, both are recommended during pregnancy. Um, there's very, very early um, data emerging on naltrexone, the use of naltrexone, but it's really not adequate yet for any of us to feel comfortable um, prescribing it for a pregnant patient. Um, but we do use the buprenorphine uh, naloxone uh, combined product um, at the Moms in Recovery program because we found we were having a lot of diversion of the buprenorphine monoproducts. So it seemed um, sensible to switch to that since we do have a lot of data on safety there. Um, buprenorphine is associated with decreased duration and severity of neonatal withdrawal, and uh, I think we've really been able to effectively um, demonstrate that here at Dartmouth, and I'll show you those data in a minute. Um, and then uh, medically assisted withdrawal, although um, one always does try to avoid substance exposure of any sort during pregnancy, is not the standard of care for a pregnant woman with OUD. And the reason for that is very simple, that it's dangerous for her. There are low rates of completion, high rates of relapse, and a much higher risk for overdose uh, for a woman who's not being effectively treated. So uh, we uh, strongly promote the use of opiate agonist therapy during pregnancy. Um, uh, we do um, take a population health approach, as I mentioned, starting with a screening, brief intervention, and referral protocol that's uh, universal in our um, OB clinic. Uh, we do not universally drug test our patients. Um, we do use a validated screening tool, and we deliver it electronically, which is sort of the gold standard. And these are the data from um, that. So um, we have, uh, we're proud of having over 90% uh, screening rate. Um, and you can see here from um, these figures here um, show responses to in the past year, how often do you have a drink containing alcohol, which is one of the first questions. That's the audit C question, right? Um, and you can see that we do have actually a significant, this is in the past year, right? Um, you can see that there are actually um, quite a few people who have, you know, two to three times a week as, as an answer, which means that you have to go to the next step of asking them, you know, sort of how is this for you? How about the four or more times a week, um, which is certainly um, in the at-risk drinking um, uh, range. So that doesn't mean these folks still drink that much now that they're pregnant, but it definitely warrants a conversation. So we have a lot uh, more conversations now about what risky drinking actually is um, than we ever did before. So I think this has been helpful for us as providers as well as it is uh, for our patients. And then you can see on the um, drug question, how many times in the past year have used an Ill illegal drug or prescription drug for non-medical reasons, which is the NIDA one question, also a validated screener. Um, there are quite a few who answer daily almost daily, and that's this green color. So, you know, every month we pick up uh, maybe four people who are using something daily or, or almost daily, and the vast majority of that might be marijuana, but actually, if you look at our numbers, it's about half and half. 
So we have a lot of people who use marijuana and opiates, and then we have a lot of people who use opiates. And so this, um, probably half of these um, people here are actually talking about opiate use. Um, so we uh, recognized that one of the reasons why um, providers were feeling so overwhelmed is because they lacked the standardized approach to caring for this population. So we developed using the EPIC uh, smart phrase feature um, a checklist of how to care for um, a patient who was pregnant um, and had disclosed opiate use disorder to us. And so um, this is just a snapshot of that, um, and I know it's very small, um, but you can see, um, or you can probably see, um, that what it is is a summary of national guidelines. So the first thing that's on it is obtain a feder uh, federally um, uh, 42 CFR compliant consent um, to communicate with any other providers who are taking care of this patient. So right off, we're going to try to bridge that gap into really doing case management and working collaboratively. Um, are they getting a hepatic function test? Um, are they getting screened for hepatitis C? And if they screen positive for antibody, are we following up with a viral load? Um, did we offer them naloxone? Did we offer um, them counseling about the risks of marijuana and pregnancy, um, et cetera. Did we discuss and treat their tobacco use disorder? So um, we found um, in our pre-analysis that we were a bit flaky on making sure that every patient got all these very specific standard things that they should have had. Um, and we've been really um, able to improve our rates, uh, which felt good. Um, so there are some significant challenges in treatment access for pregnant women, and a stigma and uh, the fear of judgment um, is really a huge uh, part of that, a huge deterrent for women in seeking treatment. And for that reason, we moved to having a dedicated perinatal program that we thought would be easier for women to engage with um, than the standard general adult population um, addiction treatment programs. And women told us that. They told us, you know, it's really hard for me to come in, you know, out to here pregnant and to walk into a room where everybody knows I'm on buprenorphine because they're all on buprenorphine and now I'm sitting down here and they're all sort of looking at me like, huh, you know, why are you on this medication and in this program when you're a pregnant woman? It may seem hypocritical, it's certainly very judgmental, um, but that um, absolutely is the case and women are acutely aware of it. So um, they also uh, have a significant problem with transportation because often um, they have other children to bring places with them and the Medicaid transport system will sometimes, will only uh, bring a mom herself. Um, and so lack of childcare becomes an access issue as well. Um, and then uh, there are some providers certainly um, in the community who really feel uncomfortable treating pregnant women. So the treatment availability is actually um, reduced for pregnant women because of that. And then um, women also um, have a very high uh, co-occurrence of anxiety and depression uh, with opiate use disorder. And so if we can't address those issues, it's very difficult for us to um, encourage them to engage in care. So this is our philosophy of care. Uh, we think of the mother and child um, together always, uh, whether um, she's pregnant and we're thinking about what's gonna happen after the baby's born and uh, her discharge plan from the hospital and what, how she's going to establish you know, a safe place, uh, safe nest for her and her baby afterwards. Um, we also always think about the other services that she needs um, and then trying to integrate um, and cross the barriers and, and uh, not uh, allow ourselves to be siloed. 
So the Moms in Recovery program um, tries to develop um, that philosophy and the care that we provide. Uh, we are located at the River Mill Complex. If you're not familiar uh, with that location, it's in West Lebanon. Uh, I'm sorry, Lebanon uh, on Mechanic Street. Um, it's a lovely old uh, brick former industrial site. <laughs> Uh, and we're tucked away in one corner. We've really outgrown that space, uh, but we're still there. Um, this was launched in 2013 as a collaboration among the departments of psychiatry, OBGYN, and pediatrics. And as I mentioned, we now have recognized our uh, interdependent relationship with many, many other disciplines. Uh, we offer care to women from pregnancy until their children enter school, but that is not a hard and fast deadline. So we also care for women who have older kids. Um, we offer three levels of care, this intensive outpatient, three hours per day, three days per week, which is a new program for us, just launched in 2018. Um, we have outpatient uh, group uh, therapy um, and medication-assisted treatment with buprenorphine, uh, which is one to two hours per day, one or two days a week. And then uh, we have a maintenance level of care after people have been in sustained recovery uh, for close to a year. Um, and all these services are offered concurrently um, in a single location. So we provide medication-assisted treatment, group and individual counseling, um, perinatal psychiatric evaluation and treatment, prenatal postpartum and well-woman care, um, pediatric care for babies, um, and then health and parenting education. We also provide a range of supportive services. So we now, um, driven by our patients, I have to say, we've really co-produced this program with them because they keep telling us sort of what our next move is. You know, So uh, we're in group and now we have toddlers and the toddlers are very disruptive. So clearly we need to find something for the kids to do. So we developed a playtime option, which is um, staffed by volunteers from Chad, led by a wonderful uh, woman, Margaret Dick uh, Martha Dickinson, who um, is an employed by our program now, uh, who used to run a Waldorf program. So this is developmentally appropriate uh, playtime. It's not a licensed daycare. Uh, we have a recovery coach uh, who provides peer support and mentoring. Um, we have a case manager, and uh, thanks to a wonderful collaboration with the Upper Valley Haven, we now have a food shelf, um, and we also provide nutritious snacks on site and prepared meals that women can take home. Uh, many of our patients live um, in very unstable situations. Um, sometimes they live in hotels, often they live in cars, um, or sleeping on somebody's couch. And so having food that's already prepared and ready that they don't have to prepare to cook um, is really essential. And when uh, women come to the program, there's always a pot of oatmeal on in the, in the pressure cooker and people can just eat breakfast there and they can feed their kids. And then we have snacks they can grab and go. We also, of course, have a diaper bank and a swap closet and we accept donations. Um, our program outcomes um, have been really promising. Um, we um, have an average gestational age of delivery, that is term, um, and normal birth weight um, on average as well. And our mean number of prenatal visits is really, um, I think, uh, a big difference from what, uh, if you look at historic data nationally, um, people tend to have very sketchy prenatal care. They're getting a lot of prenatal care from our program. Uh, we have a totally flexible scheduling pro uh, protocol as far as that's concerned. They people, my door's always open and people just stop in and say like, I really need this, I really need that. My, my mouth hurts, I think I need to see a dentist, um, et cetera. So uh, we try to make ourselves very available to patients. 
Um, 73% of our um, moms do test um, entirely negative at the time of delivery for any non-prescribed substances, and of that 26.5-27% that still test positive, the vast majority of that is cannabis. So um, we've really um, been able to help uh, get people to reduce the number of substances they're using. And our program retention is a lot better than uh, many treatment programs are um, over um, the six-month period after delivery, but we still feel that we have a long way to go. So we would like these numbers, of course, to be higher, but you can see that they've um, improved with time. Um, of note, um, 2016 is when we um, had got advanced, uh, I'm sorry, enhanced Medicaid in this um, state, and that's been great in allowing women to actually receive reimbursed services uh, postnatally because it used to be at six weeks postpartum, they were done, no insurance. Um, and here are our program outcomes for babies. Um, because of the great work that's being done um, at CHAD um, in rooming in um, and allowing mom and baby to stay together, there's been a significant drop um, in the number of babies who require pharmacotherapy um, for neonatal opioid withdrawal. And that is a huge cost saving, of course, to the institution since all these babies are paid uh, for, uh, these hospitalizations are paid for by Medicaid. And it's also um, been an enormous satisfier for our patients. So they now, instead of having a multi-week um, stay in the hospital with a baby who is in intensive care um, and being managed very medically, uh, they now are staying for four or five days in the same room with their baby, taking care of the baby, hopefully breastfeeding their baby, um, and then discharging home as a couplet. The enormous difference uh, for the moms. So, of course, there are a lot of challenges in this type of work, but there are some which are really inherent to working in an integrated program, particularly when um, the patients are pregnant and parenting women because the, um, there are a lot of privacy and legal issues wrapped up around the issue of child protection. And so um, it's really important for us to always con uh, think about both the letter and the spirit um, of 42 CFR, uh, the federal protections for substance use treatment, um, exchange of information, and making sure that um, we have consents to be able to talk to each other across disciplines. Um, the exception to that is OB um, and um, uh, addiction medicine itself because we are have the, sort of the core integrated program and all our patients understand that we will be discussing their cases as a team together. But we um, do ask our patients to give us consent to talk to um, anybody else um, about their care. Um, we also um, have some challenges around um, uh, maintaining productive relationships with our referring agencies like child protection, drug court, probation, and parole, right? So we don't want to get into the supervision or enforcement um, area there. We are healthcare providers and our goal is to take care of patients and to have a therapeutic relationship. So that can be tricky uh, because the drug court, we have a consent to talk to the drug court and the drug court now wants to know, so how is she test, you know, how are her tests look, right? Are they positive? So we have to be very transparent with the patients and talk with them about that. You know, if you sign this consent and the drug court asks me if you've had a positive uh, test for a non-prescribed substance, I have to tell them that. I can't lie, I don't lie for you, you know? Um, but I think that the honesty um, has, we've had really productive uh, conversations with moms about that and uh, we will go to court with them. Our peer recovery uh, coach does go to 
support with moms when they have to, and uh, so do some of our behavioral health clinicians, and that's only because the moms are asking them to come for support. So that says to me that we're doing a good job having this conversation and being um, very open about what our role is. So finally, um, I just wanted to um, sort of announce and talk to you a little bit about our Center for Addiction uh, Recovery and Pregnancy and Parenting. So we realized that there was a lot of disparate work being done in this um, realm um, from different disciplinary approaches and also in sort of different um, domains, if you will. Um, so we have clinical services that we're providing, but there are many of us who are also involved in research. Um, and uh, quite a few of us are involved in dissemination and implementation, both on the neonatal side with our new protocols and work that we're doing in uh, sort of perinatal quality improvement regionally in this area. And then, of course, all of this um, has everything to do with advocacy and policy and trying to get sort of humane support of laws passed in the state rather than punitive um, laws that pertain to women using uh, substances during pregnancy. So this is an acutely political issue, if you haven't uh, uh, realized that, I'm sure you have. And then uh, we have a responsibility, I think, to uh, uh, raise up our next um, generation of learners to understand uh, substance use disorders as a chronic disease process and to really think about integrated services um, and uh, providing supportive care. So we're working um, in the realm of education, both with our learners, um, with, uh, of course, uh, providing uh, patient-centered um, educational materials, um, and then working with our community partners, court system, drug court, et cetera, to really try to learn uh, to speak a common language when we think about what patients' and families' needs are. And uh, we have a website, here it is. Um, this is uh, CARP, <laughs> um, a multidisciplinary network of experienced clinicians and researchers working together. Um, and it is, uh, if you search CARP on Dartmouth-Hitchcock's website, you will find us. And uh, because we have been receiving uh, multiple calls uh, from people actually nationally um, asking about to talk to us about the work that we're doing and help them sort of figure out the service, the program development that they're doing, um, as well as providers more locally calling us uh, for advice about specific um, situations. Um, we developed a um, Q&A line. This is not a traditional consult line, like we are not accepting the patient as our patient, uh, but we will talk about general de-identified situations uh, with patients. Um, Dr. Fru um, is probably the first person we would go to for a psychiatric uh, question. Um, of course, we have maternal fetal medicine um, if we need to talk to somebody about a complex pregnancy. Sometimes these conversations would result in a referral here or, or a transfer here, um, but that's not the goal of the line. The goal of the line is to provide a, a resource uh, for our community um, partners and regional partners as well as people who are putting together their own services to care for women. All right, so just wanted to, and um, just quickly in a couple minutes and then we'll have time uh, hopefully for a conversation to talk about um, a couple of other projects that are um, under the CARP umbrella. The first one is uh, the expanding uh, MAT integration in maternity care in New Hampshire, the IMAT-OB program, and the second is um, a comparative effectiveness study that was just recently funded by PCORI. So our IMAT-OB project is now about 10 months old. Uh, it was funded, we received funding for this uh, from the state of New Hampshire um, in 
January, late January of 2018, and the goal was to expand the integration of medication-assisted treatment programs, so buprenorphine prescribing um, and supportive services such as uh, group therapy uh, for substance use disorders to um, women who are seeking care in OB practices around the state. So we have three DH OBGYN sites, uh, Cheshire Medical, um, Nashua, and uh, Manchester, DH Manchester, um, and three non-affiliated sites um, in uh, Coast County, Littleton, um, and Goodwin um, Health Center uh, down in the southern southeast of the state, um, which are um, partners and we're providing um, training for them in sort of the core aspects of our model. So group therapy led by a licensed independent clinical social worker, um, intensive case management with a case manager, um, peer recovery support with a recovery uh, certified uh, recovery specialist, um, and then some kind of support for children to um, promote access for women. Um, so that's at the core model, and uh, we're implementing it around the state in these um, different locations. This funding came through the 21st Century Cures Act, um, um, and we just uh, received word that we've been extended for another year. So we'll be able to continue this model and hopefully expand further, um, which is really exciting uh, work, I have to say, to see um, maternity care providers really stepping up to the plate and saying, you know what, we want to be part of the question uh, with with providing access to care for women. Clearly, when women are no longer pregnant, then we have to work on the um, transition to another care provider, and that is part of our model, of course, in, in this setting. Um, but the access, this will, I think, really address the access issue for women. And then, um, because we don't like to um, sort of assume anything, we also applied for funding um, for a multi-site study to actually compare outcomes for integrated versus non-integrated programs. So to look at whether there is a difference um, between uh, the experience and outcomes for a woman who receives her maternity care and her uh, addiction treatment at the same location versus somebody who receives her maternity care in one place and then is referred elsewhere, maybe to a specialty practice uh, that specializes in, in substance use treatment um, instead. So it's a multi-site um, comparative effectiveness study uh, funded by the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. And our aims are to use uh, clinical record data to evaluate outcomes for these populations and then also to follow patients um, with both uh, surveys and interviews to find out what their experience of care is in these two different models and which is actually more effective for them. Um, and then recognizing that people are not always the same um, to look at differences um, in treatment retention um, with patients who are, for example, have more severe psychiatric comorbidity, maybe have more severe addiction, um, or uh, receive either methadone or buprenorphine. So understanding that one size doesn't fit all for anybody. Um, the, this is an observational design, and the reason we had to do that is because we had this sort of natural experiment occurring regionally already with a lot of OB practices moving towards this integrated model, and then we have practices that are not. Um, but because of our rurality um, and the fact that women don't have much um, option, 
for treatment models, it really would be unethical to try to force um, any particular practice to go one way or the other. So randomization was really a non-starter uh, non for this. So the only real way to look at this is as retrospectively, um, I'm sorry, um, uh, observationally. The exciting thing about this is that we originally applied uh, for this grant with uh, 21 sites um, in mind, and we now have around 28. So more um, sites have contacted us or, or referred us to other sites, and there seems to be a lot of interest in trying to get the answer to this question of what is the best way to treat pregnant women with opiate use disorder. And these are where our sites are for this, um, a nice distribution across the three states. So. I'm going to stop there. Um, thank you for your attention and your interest. Um, and I hope we can have a conversation. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Um, I just want to shout out to you, Daisy, first of all, for people who didn't get the sense of the scale of the projects that she's describing, the work that she and her colleagues have done for the last three, four years is unbelievable. Yeah, and um, it's volume proven, but it's on a very large scale at, at this point, and it's mm -hmm. been very well recognized nationally. So yeah. again, this, it's really amazing. Um, uh, you and I have talked a lot about HIV, mm -hmm. particularly because I am still involved in perinatal HIV prevention nationally. Um, one of the things that I had been trying to get you guys to work towards was third trimester HIV testing. Mm -hmm. And I'm um, curious to know how that's going, um, just to say for the group, that yeah. internationally, uh, even though the rates of HIV um, transmission from mother to child is, are low uh, because of the recent HIV outbreaks in Indiana and Massachusetts and the latency of injection drug use, there's a great concern that things will move quickly in the population of pregnant women. And even in places like Baltimore, um, there's not great, there aren't great rates mm -hmm. of third trimester HIV testing, even though they're dealing with a very high risk population. Maybe 30% of women are in third trimester HIV testing. Whereas the national guidelines say all of these women, every single woman you're yep. describing today, really qualifies for a repeat third trimester HIV testing. Yep. So I'm happy to say that uh, because of your leadership in this, um, we did add that to the checklist. So we now have, um, for, they're screened, of course, for um, HIV, hepatitis C antibody, and hepatitis B uh, core um, antibody, uh, surface antibody, and surface antigen at the first trimester. So then we can Im uh, immunize those who um, have not been immunized. Um, and then in the third trimester, we're repeating that panel, well, the, the appropriate <laughs> parts of that panel. Um, really to try to get A um, on top of the uh, potential looming um, hepatitis B epidemic, right? Because we're finding a very large number of women are not um, immune to hepatitis B, which is surprising for women of childbearing age, they should be. Um, so it's a little hard to get them to accept getting another vaccine during pregnancy, but we are uh, trying to immunize them at the time of delivery, at least to get them started and, uh, with the understanding they'll have to come back and get re-immunized. But even if they only get one immunization is better than no immunization. So we are trying, I don't have the numbers yet because we're not through this year yet, but we will be analyzing those. And uh, thank you because I feel like we have really improved our thinking in this area because of your advice. Yes, sir. Daisy, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. How is methadone incorporated into the 
So um, women who um, are receiving methadone from community-based prescribers are welcome to come to Moms in Recovery for the uh, peer uh, support and for the uh, therapy group and any of the other services that we provide so we don't discriminate. Um, our Purple Pod Clinic in the um, OB setting is for uh, primarily uh, focused on people who receive their MAT what, of whatever kind from community-based programs because we realized that we really had two standards of care. We had the standard for people who came to the MOMS program and then everybody else was kind of getting regular OB care with the checklist thrown in and we wanted to improve that so that's why we embedded behavioral health in that clinic and embedded case management in that clinic. So um, MOMS on methadone should get access to pretty much the same services as everybody else. Forgive my not, not naivete. Your people in your group cannot initiate um, We cannot initiate methadone. methadone. Correct. So federal law requires methadone be a uh, methadone be managed, um, initiated and managed by um, a methadone treatment program, um, such as Habitofco. We cannot start that in the outpatient setting. And that's and that's not something that would be worth looking at and at some time in the future transforming, so that that people aren't, as you sort of described, sitting in this group of you know of other mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. and being pregnant. And being going through all that, it's not like like Suboxone. It seems to me can be. I may be wrong about it. Has a little less um, sort of that looking at, at you as an, an inferior uh -huh. person. Uh -huh. it, there isn't a way that that methadone could be prescribed, like say one of the psychiatrists in in, uh -huh. in, in this group. Not under current federal law, no. Yes, sir. Yeah, I want to thank you for a very thorough presentation, but I want to like to reinforce what was just said about HIV. Yeah. The 2017-2018 data shows the connection between opioid use and HIV infection. Yeah. And in some recent data that I saw just last week, uh, you can take a map of the United States and look at the hotspots of the HIV epidemic and the hotspots of the opioid epidemic, and yeah. they're superimposable. Yep. Uh, so I think that uh, you know, while hepatitis C is, uh, is important, the fact is, is that we are still experiencing 50,000 new cases of HIV per mm -hmm. year in this country, and the numbers aren't going down. Uh, your program is, in, and truth is, in those maps that I saw at, at uh, the Office of AIDS Research last week, show that New England has got its share of, of HIV, mm -hmm. as you know. Yep. So, it seems to me that you're in a very powerful position with the connections all over New England to right. really not only institute a, a screening program mm -hmm. for HIV for all women, maybe even earlier than third trimester, mm -hmm. but then have that automatically kick into the expertise here and other medical centers yep. for a treatment protocol, uh, not only for the woman, but also for the risk factor of the, of the child, yep. uh, newborn being and with, with thorough follow-up. Uh, and I fear that without that, mm -hmm. uh, uh, things are going to really get worse because uh, uh, NIH and uh, even Health and Human Services realizes there's a lot of money being poured into opioid uh, work right now, just in the last year. Yeah. And it's connected to, um, uh, to the HIV epidemic. So, so I'd share that with you. No, I agree with you 100%. I think we're very um, sort of 
uh, well, certainly fortunate, but um, also a little unrealistic in thinking that we're not going to ride this wave very soon, right? At the moment, we don't have any patients in our program who are HIV positive. We feel that that's um, just a matter of time, absolutely. So I'm thinking as you speak that um, involving um, uh, some more information, more education, and certainly um, linking uh, the CARP website to the services that are provided, the expertise that's provided here would be a really good place to start. So um, I'll bring that back to my team. Thank you. Sorry. I, I, the other aspect I yeah. wanted to ask you is uh, uh, physical violence is yes. a major it challenge is. for many of these women. They're yep. not living in cars because they're, they're just poor. Uh, do you have a pathway of connection mm -hmm. to WISE and other yep. organizations? That didn't come out of the future. Yes, thank you. That is a, um, I left that off one of those slides and it used to be there and it apparently fell off. And so, um, we do. Uh, WISE comes to um, our mom's program and sort of holds office hours sometimes. And we also have them present at our uh, health education program. And then uh, we, of course, will call and ask them to come and meet women. Uh, fortunately, when women come to treatment, it's kind of a safe space and their uh, partners are expecting them to be in treatment and expecting them to be there a while. And so we can have a, a woman meet an advocate on site and we do that. That's that's really important. And uh, one of our residents, uh, Purple, so Purple Pod is staffed by the second, the PGY2 resident, OB residents, and uh, our now PGY3, um, uh, Dr. Pavicic is doing um, an wide, uh, department-wide implementation of domestic violence screening using tablet-based uh, validated screener, uh, which has been really successful. And so we're really trying to take it from the same population health approach, universal screening and then targeted services. Um, and yeah, thank you. Great comments. Anyone else? Yes, we, I, I should clarify, we are testing in the first trimester and we're also testing in the third trimester now. And what we've added is the third trimester screen. So we had a, initially only tested in the first trimester, which is actually an opt out for all of our OB patients anyway. So all of our patients are universally screened in obstetrics unless they decline. Um, but we've now added for this group specifically the enhanced hepatitis screening and a third trimester HIV screening. So thank you for um, helping me clarify that. Yes, Laura. I have a question about hepatitis C. I was wondering, did you, did you say that 30% of your clients are testing positive for antibodies and half of those are, have a viral load? A little over half. And my question, I guess, was what percentage of that group is actually getting any kind of follow-up treatment? Yeah, so that's the work we're, we're, we're uh, working with Dr. DeGeisel around. So um, unfortunately, although they're all referred and they are pretty much, I would, it's, nothing's 100%, but we do a fairly good job of referring them um, to infectious disease by preference. We um, are seeing very few who actually um, follow through on the referrals. And we try to refer during pregnancy when women have the highest um, sort of self-care um, motivation. 
uh, just to try to get that meet and greet and face to face and warm handoff and all that stuff. And then they just don't go back afterwards or maybe not even follow through on that initial visit. So we now have Dr. DeGeisel with us for his LPMR uh, project um, uh, in the MOMS program providing on site services. Do you want to talk about that first? You're welcome to. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, so I'm Dr. Gallimanadi Fellow. And I, um, as Daisy said, I'm there once a week as a walking clinic so far. Um, and, you know, Renan and Daisy or Julia, the, the psychiatrists combine and sort of directly refer somebody. Mm-hmm. I'm happy to say that we started the first woman two weeks ago on treatment. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's postpartum or maybe in between pregnancies. I guess that's always the question. Um, I think Are we protecting the next pregnancy by treating her now? Um, yeah. But it seems to be going well. And then I've made contact with a couple of women that are either still pregnant and sort of work, you know, we're trying to uh, former relationships so that they might then come back after they deliver and, and get started with treatment. Um, and sort of an assortment of other reasons why we not have to start yet. There's still some labs that need to be done. People, one woman has gone away for a longer inpatient treatment course. So I think slowly we're sort of, mm-hmm. or I'm trying to build yeah. stronger connections so that um, once women are done with their pregnancy and their lactation, Other questions? We have time for maybe one more. Okay, thanks. Oh, thank you for watching the clock for me. It's behind me. <laughs> All right. Yes, please. Um, you, you mentioned um, having the women in there for a long time, that their partners are expecting that. What, what role, what, are you providing partner services or mm-hmm. support? So we do provide, we have a general addiction treatment program at Dartmouth-Hitchcock in the same location. So we're kind of nested inside of the DHATP. Um, And that is, uh, the ATP is actually expanding as it is becoming part of the hub and spoke um, uh, new model that uh, was just funded by um, by DHHS in New Hampshire. So um, we do always have availability of both intensive outpatient and um, weekly buprenorphine, you know, office-based buprenorphine treatment uh, for um, anybody. Um, however, we don't have a DADS program, and I think that is a lack in our program and something we've talked about a bit. Um, we do have a new uh, director of addiction treatment services in general, Dr. Archibald, who's coming actually next week. Um, and uh, we're hoping that um, since we have a little bit more guy power, so to speak, we might be able to, because we have the, all of our um, moms program with one exception, um, all of the providers are female. Uh, we were thinking it would be really great to try to move uh, to having a, a men's group um, that was specifically focused on parenting and probably that should be facilitated by a man. So um, that's, that's we, I agree with you, we need to think about that. Yeah. We did try to have a um, co-ed uh, parenting program um, that met for 12 weeks, and that was unfortunately a disaster. Like there were uh, domestic disputes that happened within it. There were people who were partners of one person who was in it, who had been partners of other people in the group, and there had been domestic violence there, and it was just really um, a bad idea. So we canned that. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you all.